Okay. To begin with, Lee, were there any blanks I missed? You're not saved from, but well, for good yeah, works? Well, yeah, in 2B2, uh, we are not saved by works that no man may boast. For some reason, you kept saying from. No, I'm the, thinking, blanks, the blank's from. It really is from? Yeah. We it, are not saved from works. We're not saved. The concept of from, like from out of. The salvation does not come up. Of would probably be even better. We're not saved of works. That's the notion of the Greek text. Okay. Our salvation is not from is not rooted in or sourced in works. It's from grace. It's from out of grace. It it springs up out of grace. It doesn't spring up out of works. That's the notion. You're fine. See, my notes are not inerrant. So you can write whatever you like. That's totally cool. (laughs) What I have printed is from. If you want to know what I have, it's from. Feel free to disagree with me on that point. From doing what has made sense. Okay. Okay. Yes, Greg. Oh, Greg needs a mic. Hold on. Oh, no, right there. Right, Greg Sweet. Right there. Yeah, hey, come on. In 3B1, uh, uh, you never, there seems to be a superfluous blank. We're not saved from, but for good works. So what's the blank? For Four blank good works? Let me see this sheet. That's not what mine has. Mandy? What are you? Um, Mandy did what you told her to again. Oh, the four shouldn't be there. The four should be erased, and the blank is the four. That Mandy. (laughs) There enough. No. The, okay, I no, I take full responsibility. That's that's on me. That's on me. It's supposed to be. We're not saved from, but for good works. Two or unto, sure, yeah, that that would be fine too. It wasn't a mistake. It was a happy coincidence. Okay, for two, for unto. <laughs> there you go, Janet. Okay. This isn't about a blank. Okay. Can I ask another question? Oh, please do. Please do. <laughs> you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Yes. Could you repeat that? I could. Um, by the way, if you ever want quotes, I'll be happy. I, I regularly give Natalie Conradi because about five times in a row she asked me when I had quotes. If, so I, now I just I come in here's your copy of the quotes. So I can give you this if you want. Charles Spurgeon. A man is not saved against his will, but he is made willing by the operation of the Holy Ghost. A mighty grace, which he does not wish to resist, enters into the man, disarms him, makes him a new creature, and he is saved. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Linda. I can't. Okay, also you, earlier than that, you had quoted a list of things that salvation included. Uh Could you go through that again? Absolutely. Give me one moment. 
to find what I'm... There it is. Okay, great. So just, just in Ephesians, I mean, the list could be bigger, but we'll just stick to what Paul has already said is included in our salvation in Ephesians. We'll just look through one through... Um, so first, in chapter 1, verse... I want to say 4. Let me get there. Galatians... There we are. Okay. Um, he chose us in him. He predestined us, in verse 5, for adoption. We've been chosen, we've been predestined, we've been adopted. Um, in him, verse 7, we have received redemption, we have forgiveness of our trespasses, um, which he loved, making known to us the mystery as well. Um, in him, verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. So you've been chosen, you've been predestined, you've been adopted, you've been forgiven, you've received an inheritance. Um, I'd add, I didn't even say this in the message, but we've received the Holy Spirit in verse 13. Um, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, we're sealed. The promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantor, guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So just in that opening benediction, you've got chosen, predestined, adopted, forgiven, um, inheritance, and Holy Spirit. Then in our section in chapter 2, adding to that, you have the three... Uh, three verbs in 5, 6, and 7. He made us alive together with him. Verse 6, he raised us with him and seated us with him. And then in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And this is all speaking of our salvation. So verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. He's talking about this salvation. Um, So all of those things are true of those who have been saved. To claim to be saved is to say, is to claim God has, if you're saying I'm saved, then you're saying God has chosen me. You're saying God has predestined you. God has adopted you. God has given you an inheritance. God has given you a spirit. God has forgiven you and cleansed you. He has made you alive. He's raised you with Christ. He's seated you with Christ. And he has made you a new creation in Christ for good works. All of that in just Ephesians 1 through 2.10 is what is part of, parcel of our salvation. And I'm sure we could add to that list if we broadened our study outside of a chapter and ten verses. Oh, in the back. Two questions in the back. Donna and Don. Uh, This goes back to last week. Uh, Did you give the answers to the last section? No, I did not. The last section is the first section here. I believe the blanks are identical. So point three from last week is point one from this week. So God's marvelous purpose. Okay. I just Um, shifted the title of the intro line to line it up with the themes of verse eight and nine. Okay. The other thing is, there was something you talked, you kind of talked about today too, about uh, the gospel being more than just salvation. Yeah. And you kind of covered that. Uh, The thing was, I was going to listen to last week's, I noticed it's not up. Is that lost in the ether or will it? It's lost in the ether. Apparently, okay. I said something the sound guy didn't like, and no, no. Do you yeah, have... There's a problem with the software or something. I, Adam was telling me, basically, record was hit, but the computer wasn't reading. It, it was a computer tech okay. person problem. Do you ever give out your notes for a sermon or... Sure. Yeah, I can get you a copy of my notes if you Okay, like. great. Thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll chat at lunch. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay, Donna. I have two questions. Um, what's the answer to um, 
3B2, which God beforehand. prepared. What's that? Beforehand. Beforehand. And then I don't know if I misunderstood you, but um, I thought you said we didn't have to ask. Is that what you said? We don't have to ask? No. What I said is you can't take credit for asking, just like you can't take credit oh. for believing. That if you, I was talking in the context of boasting. You can't even make the claim, I believed and he didn't. I asked Jesus into my heart and he didn't. That the point Paul's making is every nook and cranny, every bit of this salvation is of grace, not from our effort and exertion, not from works. It's a gift. It excludes boasting, even boasts such as, well, I believed and he didn't. We can't boast in that because even that is God's gift. That, that's, that's what I'm saying. We, I've, I hope I've said, I will say now, you must believe. And if you do not believe, you will not be saved. And no one can believe for you. God does not believe on your behalf. You truly must believe in Christ. But what we learn here is you can't do that while you're dead. And so God makes you alive. Un- Last week, the blank that doesn't exist because it's in the ether, we were ma- born again. We were made alive, not from, but to faith. Our, our being raised, our being made alive again is not because we believed, but rather, we can believe because we're alive. The, the analogy I'd use is like if you have a, a corpse dead on a slab and you make it alive, the very first thing it does is take a deep breath in <gasps> as it comes to life. And that's, that's us and faith. God speaks life into our dead hearts. Or the, another biblical imagery is the veil is removed and we see. And our immediate response is <gasps> believe. We, we believe. But so the blank last week was we are we are made alive to believe or unto faith, not from meaning not the consequence of faith. So in the cause and effect, it's not believe to be made alive, but God makes us alive to believe, and that removes boasting. Otherwise, you could say, "Well, I know God all did all these gracious things, but He only did it because I believed, and they didn't." But if the very faith itself is God's gift. And we can't take credit even for that in any boasting sense. That's, that's what I'm arguing. I think Paul so says. So you're saying that we don't get credit for asking, basically. Is that yes, what you're saying? that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, thank you. No problem. Nope. Get behind you. How should we rightly pray for our unsaved loved ones based on all that we've been learning? Uh, how should we rightly pray for our unsaved loved ones? That's an interesting question. Can you think of many examples in the Bible for the prayers of the conversion of others? I'm not saying they're not there. What's interesting is I think more often than not, the prayer is on behalf of those speaking. So the first thing I'd say is there's nothing wrong with praying for the salvation. I pray for my kids every day. But in one sense, it might be more biblical. Or more, Here's the pattern. Pray that the Lord will raise up harvesters for his fields. The fields are white and ready for reaping. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up harvesters. Lord, I pray that you would bring believers into the lives of these people who would speak the words of life to them. Lord, I pray that you would remove the veil. This is how I pray for my kids. Lord, I pray that you would remove the veil that is blinding them. The God of this world is blinding them from seeing the light of the glory of, of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, give my children eyes to see and ears to hear. Bring them to faith. Save them. 
You know, in one sense, I think we're all Calvinists on our knees. We, we don't pray. I, I don't pray. Lord, bring my children to a place where they can make a free, free informed and uncoerced decision. Lord, let them make a free choice as they see fit. Respect their free will and just let them make an informed and free decision, whatever that may be, and then abide by it. I do not pray. I say, save my kids. Speak life into them. Raise them from the dead. Pull the, pull the mask off. Take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. All these biblical metaphors, and I'm praying for my children. Um, bring them to faith. It's, we saw last week um, in Acts, turn to Acts 16. I'll show you an example of this, as I, I think it's an example of this, in Acts 16. And I meant to go to John 3 last week. We can do that as well. Um, but Acts 16, the conversion of Lydia. Um, 14. So here's Paul describing the conversion of Lydia. Paul's preaching um, in Troas, I believe. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Or I think the NASB, the New American Standard, has opened her heart to respond. So there's my point being, absolutely, you must believe, my children must believe, our loved ones must believe. They, they, they are called upon to believe. But yet the Bible makes it clear there's even a work of grace that, that precedes that or causes that of God's part. And that's what I'm like, God, open my kid's heart to respond to the gospel. I keep, we keep listening to the Jesus story Bible, we keep reading the Bible. Lord, would you do that in their hearts like you did with Lydia? That's, that's why I pray for my kids. Um, so... Okay, Donna, again, okay? I just want to make a comment. Um, I do pray that. Awesome. Uh, Yay. And I am so thankful that, um, number one, I had good friends. Number two, my kids had good friends. Number three, my grandson has good friends, and most of them have families who are saved. Mm. And uh, so I totally agree with that one. Amen. Amen. Oh, Sarah Brown. Oh, Oh, over here. Sorry. Dan, go. You got the mic. Sarah needs. You can bring a mic down to Sarah. On the, as the mic comes down, Dan. When we're looking at verses eight and nine, I mean that's pretty clear that we're not saved through works. How do these denominations that emphasize works and sometimes almost deny faith? I mean, how do they do that? Generally, um, with some really tricky definitions of things. Give you an example. Roman Catholicism is a category called congru- congruent grace, I believe. No, condign grace from the word congruent. So congruent is a word meaning two things that are parallel or similar, right? Fitting. Condign grace is they know they cannot say God's obligated to do anything. However, if you do rites and rituals, if you take the mass, your baby's baptized, whatever... God isn't forced to be gracious, but it would be odd if he didn't. It would be unfitting. It would be un- See how they're dancing around obligated grace? And that's their categories, condign grace. So you can get grace, 
so much grace for so little coin. And, and, they may, and in other places, they may be more blunt. I mean, they'll just sell the grace of penance. I mean, that, that was Tetzel, right? When Luther was so incensed, when he was literally saying, so much grace for so little coin. And Luther, who's read his Bible, is like, you're talking square circles. You're talking about buying free gifts. Doesn't make that, it's nonsense. Um, and um, so there's, there's ways around it. Another way they can get around it is to refer to their rites and rituals not as works. So in, in the denominations that demand baptism as, as, a, as what's called baptismal regeneration, um, I believe much of the Church of Christ holds to that, um, as do other denominations. They'll then say that that baptism is not a work. The problem with that logic is that Paul definitely makes the point that circumcision is a work. And so it seems pretty clear that if the sign of the old covenant is considered a work, what's the sign of the new covenant? Right, um, and so that's one way to get around is it's not a work. Oh, it sure seems like one. Um, but th- those are some of the ways. To add, I'm, and other people might just get around it by just denying the Bible. But at least those are two ways that I know people will try to get around these clear statements. But um, it, it doesn't it doesn't hold up. But but trust me, when you, if you start looking into this and. I think they're all gone now, but I can make some more. I think it'd be good to make a couple more if Mandy makes some more. If any of you have listened to R.C. Sproul's two talks on uh, the gospel and justification, in one, it's really fascinating. In the same way that Paul here says this, not this, in two messages, he explains first a Roman Catholic understanding of justification. And it's fantastic. He's not rude. He's not sarcastic. He, he, just, he knows his stuff and he lays it out. And he explains this is what they teach. Then the second message, this is what I believe the Bible teaches about justification. And it's really eye-opening. And th- these guys are smart, and they're clever, and it's, it's intricately woven in. For instance, Rome would freely admit your good works are worthless. They're menstrual rags. They're, they're medical waste. They're, but Christ can infuse them by faith so that your good works, like, like sort of like the alchemy turning lead into gold, Christ's death on the cross can, by faith, infuse. This is their word, infuse. That's their term. Infuse your good works so that they become acceptable. So, so in Roman Catholic understanding, justification is a process. You are made righteous. As Christ's righteousness adheres, another term they like to use, adheres to, is infused to, and then adheres, and is improved upon by your faith. It's like you get a little seed of like a righteousness plant, and you have to water the little righteousness plant, and the righteousness plant grows, and when the righteousness plant is full grown, you're righteous. Which is why purgatory exists to finish the job, which most of you won't finish in this life. I mean, is that a, is that a fair description? You were a Roman Catholic for, for many years, I know your husband was. I, I don't think I'm slandering Rome in any way. I, this is, I think, their teaching. I mean, they may not like my picture of the righteousness tree, but infuse, adhere, and improve upon. Those are their terms that they freely... You want you go go look up the Vatican website. Read their catechism. Read what they say they believe. It's, it's educational. If you think, oh hey, we used to disagree in the 1600s, but we're all cool now. Um, I did a message about three years ago on the Reformation and justification, and I was reading from the current Vatican official catechism of what the Rome Church of Rome teaches, and just like. I'll, I'll let them say it so that I'm not misquoting them. I don't want to misrepresent them. But we really do believe really different things. 
It's not a difference of opinion. It's not semantics. There's substantive, real disagreement over how one is saved between Roman Catholicism and what we believe and what I'm saying Paul's teaching here. Absolutely. But I don't have an exhaustive um, understanding of why they teach what they teach. (laughs) But who is next? Oh, Sarah. Then Jim. So I have two things. The first is more of a comment about the prayer question that was asked. Um, in Ephesians 6, it gives an example of how to pray. Because mm. Paul says, pray boldness. for me for boldness that I'll boldly proclaim the gospel. And Sarah, well done. Let's take a look at that real fast. 18, 618. Fantastic. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me. This, this is, by the way, is comforting. The Apostle Paul admits to getting stage fright, admits to nervousness, and asks for prayer that he be bold. Okay? And for me also, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And my point is not stop praying for your loved one's salvation. Start praying more for the people who are going to speak. Because more often than not, I think that's where the Bible directs the prayers. So it's not a stop this as much as it sure looks like most of the time the prayers are for the messengers. So we should be pray- We should certainly keep praying for your loved ones and start praying more and more for the messengers and for our missionaries and for those who are going out to proclaim. That's, um, yeah, so that's one point. Go, Sarah. Okay, then I had a question. Um, okay. With all of the things we've been learning about how God has chosen us and once we're saved, we're secure in him and he sealed us, how does that work with someone who has proclaimed salvation, proclaimed I'm trusting in Christ for a period, and then they walk away? That is a huge, good, big question. I'm going to have to take a long answer on that one. So let's, let's, there's a couple ways to interpret it, and it would come down to specifics beyond that. So let me, let me tell you the three big, broad answers I'd give. Um, we know that believers can and do walk in darkness for extended periods of time. <coughs> King David's a, a great example. So King David murders a man, commits adultery, possibly date rape, and um, covers it up. And he involves, he compromises his, his generals, his, I mean, there's just, it's a big mess of sin as he makes this conspiracy. And the kid gets born, and David hasn't confessed it. So we're talking at least nine months, maybe more. Nine months of unconfessed murder, adultery, possible rape, um, as God's theocratic king of Israel, as the religious head. He's not just the political head, but he's the religious head of Israel. And that's, that's big, and he's able to recover from that. He is able to, um, he's able to return in repentance and faith. He writes Psalm 51 about that. So, there's, so during those nine months, what would you make of King David? I don't know. I mean, it'd be really confusing. This is the Lord's anointed. This is the one who has the heart after God. Um, but I also would think David didn't know what to make of himself. And it's interesting in Psalm 51, in other words, I'm not certain David is confident he's saved. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That's Psalm 51. 
So I think it may even be possible for David to be like, I don't, did I ever know, like, what? So there's, that's one possibility. The other possibility is in 1 John. Let's go to 1 John, I think, chapter 2. Um, Is it two or is it three? Problem is, my copy of First John's like everything's underlined. Um, they went out from us to show that they were not of us. Two nineteen. Thank you, sir. Um, Two nineteen gives an instruction of how to deal with those who were gathering with us, were confessing with us, were walking with us and now have left and are no longer walking after Christ and no longer confessing. And he expressed this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Which is, again, they didn't lose their salvation. They never were of us. Even though they walked with us for a while. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So the general pattern is the Lord shepherds his sheep, and so he keeps his sheep believing, he keeps them persevering. And so John's saying, in many cases, the people who depart and leave and walk away, it's actually to reveal, to bring to light, they were never of us. That's the other possibility. Um, The third possibility, um, or something close to that, is, um, go to the the end of 1 John. Probably one of the more, um, one of the more... Tricky passages is a situation, I believe, where a genuine believer is killed by God so as to bring to an end their, their rebellion, and it's an, actually an act of mercy. Um, so, verse 16 to chapter 5. Now, granted, this is probably in the top 10 or top 5 most debated passages in the New Testament, simply because nothing else uses this language. So we've got to try to figure out what John's talking about, and there's very little to compare it to. I think there's one or two passages you could compare it to, but if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will forgive him, will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that one should pray for that. So we get that. Now jump over to 1 Corinthians 5, and I'll try to make the only parallel I can think of for that which is um, in relationship to church discipline, of all things. Um, So here, Paul is telling the Corinthians to expel from their midst the man who's had an ongoing affair with his stepmother. See, they were priding themselves on how tolerant and non-judgmental and inclusive and loving they were. And he says to them um, in verse... um, Start in verse 3. Let's start in verse 1. We can get the whole context. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It's actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, so then we're going to get some further clarification of what it means to be removed. 
For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here, you're envisioning a a physical, possible even death, that you're hoping and praying for a spiritual deliverance. This person's going to be removed from the care of the church, the protection of the church, the loving embrace of the church, and that's going to be hard for them. He defines it as the destruction of the flesh. But all that is done not in anger and in self-righteousness and in sneering, but that they might ultimately be saved and come to their senses. So there may be more ways things play out, but when, when people who walked with the Lord, confessed faith, were united with other believers, people who appeared to grow, abandoned their professions and walk away, it's one of those things. And then you have to, I think, go into the actual specifics to get a better idea of which one of those things you're dealing with. Um, heavy, heavy and uh, important question. Carol Hardy in the back. Oh, no, Jim. Jim, Carol's on deck. Jim. Uh, Going back to praying for unbelievers, this is a more, uh, a larger group, obviously, as opposed to individuals, but uh, Paul's prayer or lament in Romans 10. Oh, yeah. Which says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may may be saved. saved. Oh, don't hear me say we don't have examples of praying for the salvation of people. By no means. Absolutely. We've got, and in 1 Timothy 2, that prayers and supplication made for kings and rulers and all men everywhere. So absolutely, there are examples of prayers for people's conversions. But I think if you stacked them up, you'd find more prayers for the, the, the evangelists and the Christian witness. And so as I look at my prayer life, I've more often have to remind myself to pray. You know, it's why I'll sometimes um, tease, loving, hopefully lovingly tease, someone I've got a coworker pray for. I'm going to pray for you, that God would give you boldness to open your mouth to speak the words of life. And I'll pray for them. You know, um, because that's the biblical pattern that I'm seeing. So, so absolutely there are examples. By no means hear me say it's unbiblical to pray for the salvation of loved ones. Completely biblical. It's also biblical to be praying. No, 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 thank no, no, yes. Okay. Carol, then, then um, Lois. Carol's going to need a microphone. The other Carol. Okay, this goes back to the, um, the uh, prior, the prior question, but the, the story of, um, um, Robert Robinson, who wrote Come Thou Fount. Mm. Some of you are familiar with that story. A lady was on a stagecoach, and um, she was singing her favorite hymn, and there was a drunk sitting across from her who finally said, Stop singing that. And she said to him, um, Sir, don't you like that hymn? He said, Like it. I wrote it. And you know, I've read that numerous places, so I, th- I think it's true, yeah. but I think that I've read also the rest of the story as he, Robert Robinson, turned around and ended up his life on a positive note. And I'm just thinking it's, it is possible for 
genuine Christians to get quite a ways off off track before right. the Holy Spirit, you know. I mean, even us, we don't get that maybe that far off, but we, right. but we, um, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says something to us, and we think, "How in the world could I have been thinking like that right. or doing that?" And uh, so, I don't think you autom- automatically assume someone's not a genuine believer just because they've quote backslidden. Well, let me let me go a step further. I don't I don't think, and this is important. I don't think it's ever my job to to conclude one way or the other. That, that those aren't the judgments I'm called to make. Rather, the Lord calls me. If if to use a silly vernacular example. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, treat it like a duck. When people confess faith in Jesus Christ according to the gospel, and when they evidence desire to follow him, without questions, without um, suspicions, we embrace them as believers. If they stop doing either of those things for any extended period of time and stop listening to correction, then we stop treating them like ducks. Not for a second saying, I now am saying you're not a duck, but just... I don't think dad wants me to treat, let's jump back to the family. Dad has told me not to treat as brothers and sisters people that, that talk or walk as you are walking or talking. Um, and so it's, it's like, do I know my wife is a believer? No. Do I have any reason to doubt she's a believer? Not that I'm aware of. But I mean, I don't know if I'm called to make those judgments. So when I say I don't know, I'm not saying I have some lack of knowledge. It's just not my prerogative to judge that. Rather, here's someone who consistently over you know, decades has professed faith in Christ, has followed Christ. I have no reason to doubt that, but those judgments belong to God, not me. Rather, I think I ought to receive, believe, accept, regard, think of, interact, and treat with her as a believer. Right? Um, so what do you make of someone like Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan went through a Jesus phase. I think there's three albums of his that really, there's some good stuff on there, right? I mean, I'm not a big Dylan fan, but I mean, he, he credibly looks like a believer, right? His story's not done yet. Who knows? Now, what I would say, though, and this is, this is, the, this is the flip side of what I'm trying to make the emphasis I'm trying to make is, I would think that Bob Dylan and what he professes to believe now, the lifestyle he lives now, I'll choose my words carefully, should expect to perish in the state that he is in now. That those around him or know him or who talk to him should biblically expect the same thing, which is not to say to know. What does the Bible say of such people who once confessed and walked away and now profess to believe the things he believes and live the lifestyle he lives? They should expect to perish. I have not said they will perish. Note the diff- I mean, Do you get my distinction? But the danger would be to say, we don't know if Bob Dylan's saved. He might be able to, you're right. We should warn him as though he's about to perish if you had the opportunity. That, that's the concern that I have is that in our, well, we don't know who's saved, we then don't give the dire warnings we should give to some people. I think someone in that state, I should warn urgently as if their soul depends upon it. I fear you will perish in your current state. You should expect biblically to perish given your current confession and your current walk. And so um, I, I agree, we can't know. But I oftentimes hear people say that as justification for not issuing a warning, for not giving a hard word to somebody. Well, we don't know. Like, we're not told warn unbelievers. We're told to warn these people who act or say or do these things. Those are the people we, we would give a warning to. 
um, and and let let dad figure out who his kids are. Does that distinction make sense? Because I, I I completely agree with you as far as you go, but I, I hear I've certainly heard plenty of people argue because of that, drawing the wrong conclusion because we can't know who's saved and who's not saved. Don't treat apostasy as an urgent matter. Don't treat unrepentant sin as a life or death critical issue. Um, we ought to. You know, Paul, go to, go to Ephesians. We'll jump ahead to Ephesians 5, right? So can a believer, can a believer be engaged in unrepentant, habitual um, sexual sin? Yes, they can. Uh, the history of the church has... has testified to people who backslidden and snared in things. And yet Paul writes very, very forcefully this warning, and, and he writes it to a church. Um, and, and so we, we do not do anyone any favors by gutting these warnings. Okay? So, 5.3. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness, and now we've broadened it out just, not just from sexual immorality, but to covetousness. Sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among the saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now look at 5 and 6, and how strongly Paul writes. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ, Christ and God. Let no one deceive you that Paul anticipates teaching will arise in the church that says, no, 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 no. And he, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So when I encounter someone who professes to be a Christian who is ensnared in that, I'm going to come at it with, with great trepidation and concern even though they may be a believer. Sure, they might. My instructions are to treat this as life or death, heaven and hell, and with that level of gravity, speak to them. That's, my, that's all I'm trying to guard against, is that by saying, well, we don't know if they're a believer. They're, fair enough, we don't know if they're a believer. I do know that people who live this way should expect to perish. That, does that make does that? And if they are the Lord's sheep, then they'll stop living that way eventually. <laughs> Or the sin unto death, the Lord might take them home early. That's, that's possible. I, but what normally happens, what I'd expect to happen, is perishing. It's not inheriting the kingdom of God in Christ. And so I would never want to presume to state knowledge. I know you're going to hell. I would rather say I fear, and I think biblically based on what you're saying or what you're doing, the biblical expectation would be to perish. That terrifies me because I love you and I care for you. I want to warn you um, because Paul's pretty clear. And I'm never speaking in the categories of knowledge. I'm never speaking. Like, I know as if I'm supposed to walk around like believer and non-believer. Rather, here are the people who are to accept and receive as brothers, we're to embrace, we're to give the right hand of fellowship to, we are to um, fully treat and regard and pray for and interact with as believers, and then we don't overhear. Um, does that make sense? Okay. You want to add anything to that? Or is that, is that cool? Sorry. So I, that's a long way of me saying, yes, I agree with you. But um, <laughs> because so often I hear the, the, that, that statement get used to what I think is an incorrect conclusion, I wanted to 
No, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just trying to. Okay. I just brought that up to get you to talk like you just did. Okay. Well, task so, accomplished. Sir. So the lady across from him in the stagecoach should have said, um, "Sir, how could you have written that? You seem to be uh, headed for judgment, right, right? The way you're living right now." Right. Um, but I'm thinking of the phrase in the song I, I failed to quote: "Prone to wander, Lord, Lord I, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love." You know, I mean, there it is, right there in the yeah. in the very hymn. He's thinking about it even as he wrote it. Right. You right. know, so. Well, there's some terrifying stories. Do you know the story of Charles Templeton? Yep, yep. The, sh- the short version, Charles Templeton was a contemporary of Billy Graham and was an evangelist. The two of them would travel together frequently for crusades. And in his prime, Templeton was touted as the greater luminary and up-and-coming star more than Graham. And Charles Templeton went and went to seminary, at a liberal seminary, eventually eroded his belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and Charles Templeton died as an atheist sportscaster in Canada. <laughs> and, and again, I'll, these judgments belong to the Lord. Biblically, how would I interpret that? I think biblically, based on the evidence I know, I would interpret that. He departed from us. Sh- it seems most fitting. He departed of us to show he was not of us. That, that's how I would interpret that. I could be wrong. Hope I am. But based on the instructions I have, that's the best fit of reading that I would have. But I don't claim to have a, a judge. I'm not pronouncing Charles Templeton damned. But the only way I could declare someone's not a believer, if you can work a miracle and say Christ is cursed, you're not a believer. No one operating by the Spirit says Jesus Christ is accursed, John says. So if you can work a miracle and curse Jesus... You're going to hell. Like I'll, and that's just right now, because that could change tomorrow. But as of right now, I can say with absolute certainty, you are not a Christian if you can work a miracle and curse Christ. Beyond that, I'm looking at evidence, and I'm, and I'm sizing up what people are saying, what people are doing, because you'll know the tree by its fruit, right? And, and so beyond that, that's all I'm called to do. Um, who's next? Lois. In Oh, Time. Lois, you're closing the sentence. This is it. Then, then what's next is time. Um, this is yeah. in Hebrews. It quotes a psalm that says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, says when they provoke me. So is it possible for people that God is calling to, to deny him, to not follow him? If you go on finishing the quote, um, Today, is it written, do not harden your heart, as he did it, Mary, about the wilderness. Um, are you talking about Hebrews 3 or 4.12? Is that what you're quoting, 4.12? Yeah. Um, it's in Hebrews uh, 3.8, 3, and again in 15. Okay. 3.15. Well, let me, let's just use Hebrews to answer your question, and I will punt. We can pick this up next time. I think the key to that is in verse 12. So all of chapter 3 is an extended citation. of He's quoting Psalm 95. So take care, as a consequence, take care. Brothers, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, that sounds like this could be somebody who's a believer losing their salvation, right? But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. That's past tense, right? Sometime in the past, we became Christians, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
So what ha- what's then true if we don't hold our confidence firm to the end? Not we stopped being Christians. We never came to be Christians. So the tenses of the verbs there are critical. You and I became Christians in the past. We have become Christians if we hold fast firm to the end. Not in our own strength, but as we sing, he will hold me fast. So I, I would say that there are some phrases in there that might make you think, oh, they lost their salvation in falling away from the living God. But the summary statement that makes it the clear of the import of what he's saying is verse um, 14, where he makes it clear, for we have become Christians if we, we have become partakers in Christ if we hold our confession firm to the end. So I'd, I'd let that clarify what he's been saying. And say, no, he's not saying you lose your salvation. Our time is up. We can talk about this next week. God bless. Godspeed. Thank you very much.